Welcome to episode 158 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm Markham Hislop, energy journalist and CEO of Energy Media. And today I'm going to be talking to Drew Uchuk, who's a staff lawyer at the Public Interest Law Clinic, University of Calgary, about the Alberta Energy Regulator. In particular, the report of the Alberta Auditor General, Doug Wiley, on the liability management of non-oil sands, oil and gas infrastructure. Now, I know that sounds technical and maybe sounds a little boring. Folks, buckle up. It is anything but. And before we get, uh, I introduce Drew, or get Drew, let, I'll, before I let Drew talk, I, I want to say something here. I, I've In the past month, I've done a number, probably about a dozen interviews with various experts, uh, on oil sands tailings pond, which fall under the AER remit, uh, on uh, unpaid oil and gas taxes, on uh, abandoned and inactive wells, on and on and on. And when, after all of those interviews, so I, I think I can say as a journalist that I've got a, a pretty good handle on the big, at least the big issues, the big picture. And my response is that if I were, an, an, you know, the average Albertan, I would be outraged. This is, this stinks to high heaven. And we're not going to use some of the words that I'd like to use because we don't want to get sued for slander and defamation. But boy, this is bad. And what we're going to do, I'm going to rely upon Drew today to bring a sense, you know, the lawyer's sensibility to this to dig beneath the outrage and say, this is what happened. Here are some explanations for why it may have happened. But by God, somebody's got to clean this mess up. So after that introduction, Drew, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. And I don't know, how do you respond to that? Uh, yeah, I think outrage is definitely in order here. Um, to give a, a brief comment on how I came into this. I was an articling student at the clinic when Redwater went to the Supreme Court and the clinic was involved there. And that was when I first was introduced to the problem of inactive and orphan liabilities and how strange the AER's approach was. So that was 2016. Uh, I start posting on a blog a lot more around 2019. And so I've been following the issue really closely for three or four years, and I've been aware of it for longer than that. Um, yeah. So that's, well, look, that's I, I, let me start with uh, the interview I did with Professor Jason McLean, the University of New Brunswick, who said, here are the criteria for uh, determining if a regulator is captured. That is, it's working in the more in the industry's interest than in the public interest. So the AER is not only captured, the Department of Energy is captured, the Alberta government is captured all by the oil and gas. I mean, this is one of the most captured regulatory processes in the in Canadian history, from what I can see. I mean, this is okay. So that's just one. And then I've had in interviews with you know Mandy Olsberg. Uh, who uh, is a was a toxicologist at the AER who talked about irregularities with the tailings pond, Jonathan Matthews, another you know uh, uh, oil sands uh, company uh, engineer who's worked in oil sands tailings ponds for over 30 years. All sorts of irregularities there. Unpaid taxes has been a huge issue in Alberta. And so with that as context, the Auditor General releases this report. Now, you say we should be outraged. Give us your kind of a general take on the report before we get into the specifics. Uh, so the report the report includes some surprising new stuff, uh, but a lot of it is the official confirmation of things that people who have been researching these issues for years had had seen bits of or gradually proved over time. So inactive assets don't get reactivated. I think Lucija Muhlenbach had a paper kind of proving that a couple of years ago. I, in 2022, was involved with a project at the clinic to figure out how the Orphan Well uh, Association's levy was charged. This puts in writing clearly proving what we could only suspect at the time. So it's... It's a mixture of confirmation of things that people knew and some surprising new details. 
It does cover a four-year period, and it's a moving target because during that time, the AER switched their CEO. Jim Ellis left after the i affair. Lori Pushor comes in. There's an interim period, no CEO for a while. So the report also described a moving target because the AER is trying to make a new system and replace the old one. So let's talk about Ellis for a minute, um, very briefly. Uh, basically, he and a fellow... AER employee, as I understand the story, were caught setting up a separate company and they were trying to uh, divert AER resources to support that company. Have I got that correct? Yeah. ICOR was go going to be spun off into a nonprofit and it appeared that Ellis meant to become head of that nonprofit so that he could draw a higher salary. It, it, there's bits in the reports that make it look like his plan was to somehow move the intellectual property for one stop into i and sell it to uh, other jurisdictions. Um, I, I know he was in talks with Mexico and Ukraine. I don't know if it, none of those deals end up going anywhere because the whole thing falls apart. Uh, one of the funny parts is that the Auditor's General's report is pretty critical of one stop. It doesn't work very well. So his plan was to take and then sell software that doesn't really work. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the beginning, Ellis, uh, Ellis gets caught with his fingers in the cookie jar. Uh, then there's a period of, of, you know, drift because there's no CEO they're waiting. And then Lori Pusher comes in. Now Pusher has a, a suspect background uh, as well. I mean, he was very much a political, I'm going to call him a political hack. He can sue me if he wants to, but a political hack in Saskatchewan for the Saskatchewan party. And then he gets appointed CEO of the AER. And there was a lot of criticism at the time that he wasn't qualified uh, for that. So, so here, this, this, the regulatory body for energy in, in, uh, in Alberta uh, just goes from, you know, a, a crisis to a drift to a, to, you know, suspect management uh, it's not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems about right. Okay. Uh, at least, uh, okay. We've got our, we got our fingers on the pulse here. Now, look, uh, there are six areas that the, a, uh, the auditor general's report dealt with, uh, with respect to the liability management system. That's what he was looking at. We're going to not go in order because I think the, the last three are the most interesting ones. We'll, uh, so we'll start there. And that's number five, process, processes to ensure sufficient financial security, minimize risk of inappropriate license transfers. Now, as I understand this, Drew, it's been a longstanding process in Alberta that when um, producing assets like Wells come to the end of their productive life, the big companies will sell them off to these little companies and basically transfer their environmental liability and then very often the little companies either fail or they they you know aren't in a position financial position to uh, to basically remediate the sites and and plug the wells and and all of the things that are, they're required to do. So is that what this section is about? Yes, um, I think one of the most interesting parts in the report related to this is that the liability estimate for the conventional oil and gas field doubles. It was thirty billion. And the Auditor's General's report says now it's $60 billion. Internal to the AER, it's $60 billion. And it includes one part that that $62, $62 billion was calculated in 2019. So inside the regulator, it appears they worked out that the liabilities were double what they were telling the public. And they didn't really tell anyone for three and a half years. And we uh, only know because the Auditor General sussed it out and put it in his report. Well, I, the Auditor General, I don't think, calculates it. I think the Auditor General just read it off a paper in the AER office and then reported it to the public. So that's really not impressive. Um, but there's there's one paragraph here that will help to explain why the AER has such a confused approach to fixing liability management after 2019, because Redwater happens in 2016, the regulator takes a long time, about three years, to come to a really clear understanding of exactly how badly their system had gone wrong. But the report says 
when updated information and pipelines were included, because pipelines were not included at all in the old 30 billion figure, uh, deemed, assets, deemed assets would have dropped from 148 to 93 billion. So the value of the assets was being overestimated by about a third uh, or 50% inflation, depending on how you want to calculate that. And liabilities would have gone from 30 to 62 billion. And this would have changed the amount of security owing from 400 to 17 billion. So it's about a 34 times increase. And that's because of the weird structure of the LMR. It, it collects security in a non-linear manner. So- Well, hang on a second. Before you get into that, let, let's just back up for a minute because I, I want to summarize this. So the uh, the cost, the environmental liabilities attached with all of the wells in Alberta was essentially was $30 billion. Now it's recalculated at $60 billion. The the value of the of all of those assets as of when it was calculated is $90 billion. We're getting not, you know, within spitting distance of insolvency here. Yeah. Maybe. Um those the the 2019 asset value might not match what the LOR would calculate anymore because of the recent high oil prices. But as oil prices go back down, yeah, we're going back into that range. Uh, right. And I, and I should point out, I should point out that every time there, these kind of calculations are done, they're on the low side. And I'm talking about the, the environmental liabilities, the cost to clean up always tend to be, I would, I would err on the low side. It's like, like remember when the federal government took over the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline Project and it was going to be, you know, 7.5 billion or something. And now it's 30 billion. You know, big projects like this always have cost overruns and time overruns. That's I think we should take. So, <laughs> if if sixty billion is a conservative estimate, it's actually probably higher. And then oil prices fall, and the ninety billion dollar the the valuation of the assets falls. Hello, insolvency. Yeah, it's 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 a tough spot, but the. That 2019, that change to the security owing, what that meant was that the regulator, when they did that recalculation, realized that they should have been collecting $16.5 billion from industry overnight if they corrected the numbers. I think they froze like a deer in headlights because that would have bankrupted immediately hundreds of companies. And I think that is the largest cause of the drift in inaction here, that when they saw how big the problem was, they couldn't even figure out what their next step was to try to get down from the situation they were in. So from the Auditor General's, I didn't have a chance to read the whole report. It's uh, a bit much to digest for non-specialists uh, like myself, but I did read the backgrounder. And here's what the backgrounder said, the licensee liability rating program, which has historically failed to properly identify financial risks and to ensure sufficient security is collected, remains in place while AER determines a future approach to security. So once again, they're back in the drawing table trying to figure this out. And they've my take on this, Drew, is they have created such a hash out of this and the industry, now, it's the smaller players that are the bigger problem here, right? And maybe some of the intermediates, not, not the really big ones, you know, the Suncors and Synovus and those kind of players. We're talking about the, the smaller ones. And a lot of these, they've either failed or they're on the, the verge of bankruptcy and they don't have any credit. And they're barely, I think, as you pointed out in, a, in an earlier interview, you know, they're, they're basically just subsisting on whatever revenue their their current uh, wells are producing. No one will give them any money. I mean, there there's really no, there's no good way out of this mess. Yeah, there's there's a lot of companies that are in really dire financial straits and have been since before 2019. The regulator figures that out in 2019 and still hasn't found a, a path forward to try to get out of it. Uh, that that is what we're looking at. Uh, 
that after the problem is assessed, there's three years of very slow action. So they've partially replaced the uh, LLR program with the new licensee capability assessment by 2021 or so it starts to come into force. And that that really only controls when licenses get transferred. But if a company is just sitting there slowly using up their assets, it's not obvious what the regulator is going to be doing. Their most recent statements make it sound like they're considering trying to take security as remaining life of asset or like the, the reserves are drawn down. But there's no information on how much or how low reserves have to get before they're going to start to do that. And, and this is maybe an appropriate time to talk about uh, Premier Danielle Smith's R-Star program, which in its entirety was is is in, when she was a lobbyist prior to being becoming premier. This just, just you can't you can make this stuff up. Uh, she was a lobbyist prior to becoming premier in, in August, and she lobbied for the twenty billion dollars of of tax credit to be given to these companies that are in trouble to clean up inactive and abandoned wells. And her, I think it's pretty well known in Alberta that her political base is with the smaller oil companies. They provide a lot of the, the money for her campaign and the, and the organizations that support her. And it's, it's like, okay, her political base is in trouble. All right, here's how we fix it. We give them $20 billion of public, taxpayers dollars to fix it it's it's kind of outrageous actually it's <laughs> yes uh r star is not included in the auditor general support because it happens after june 2022 so there's a little note in there where you can very you see the auditor general happily saying i don't have to deal with that yet thank goodness that's outside of the mandate that gets in the next report so that's oh, not actually yeah. in here but if you go back to that 2019 statement and if you just want to uh, to feel your brain overheat for a second, there was the option if the regulator had corrected all the LLR things and overnight bankrupt all those companies, the political base and the financial source for Smith's campaign uh, and like the the current wave of right wing politics in Alberta would not exist. Yeah, that's right. It'd all be bankrupt. Yeah, it just it wouldn't have existed, but. None of that happens. Alternate history. So forget that. Let's go yeah, back. Yeah, just an interesting aside. Now let's talk about license transfers because, okay, so this is where the big companies transfer their uh, their depleted assets and their environmental liabilities that go with them to the little guys. Then the little guys, you know, inevitably fail or they're in, in trouble and they, they can't post security. And, and this has been going on for decades, according to people that I've talked to. I, I think that's fairly well recognized. So what does the Auditor General have to say about this? Uh, they they note a few of the ones we were aware of. So situations like what happened with Manitoc, where a company actually doesn't even shift their liabilities to a smaller company, but just declares bankruptcy, incorporates a new company, and then purchases the valuable assets from their old company out of bankruptcy. So that the same guys end up owning the valuable wells while they leave the non-valuable wells over to the OWA. Uh, so it notes that that happens. The AER did not do a good job of stopping it in the past. Uh, and it mentions Sequoia a little bit. I won't talk about Sequoia because I will. that will take the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, it discusses that. It discusses that the AER wasn't able to collect the security that it wanted. This was another known problem with the LLR that was really bad here, uh, that when they sent these companies letters saying your, your score has dropped too low, we think your liabilities are too high, companies would say, if we give you any money, we'll go bankrupt. We don't have enough money to pay you. And the AER would realize that that was true, that their only option was to bankrupt this company or to just leave them alone. Right, which your point. What you're talking about is is the AER required these companies to have two their assets had to be two times their liabilities. And so there was two to one ratio. And and if that if it dropped uh to lower than two, then then they got the letter, uh, which did absolutely no good because as you say, uh the AER didn't want to take the heat for pushing them into bankruptcy. So the you know, and I heard from a banker I interviewed uh, three or four years ago. It's a big problem for the financial institutions because you know they 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 
what do they do with these companies? They don't want to push them into bankruptcy either because they're worried that they'll be stuck with the financial, the environmental liabilities. You know, so these environmental liabilities, I mean, it's a, it's a hot political potato and everybody's throwing it around hoping somebody else will catch it. Yeah. And after 20, after Trident, so I think late 2019, 2020, a company called Trident goes bankrupt and the AER pushes Trident into bankruptcy itself. After that, the AER stops doing that. They leave it to the Orphan Well Association, which is run by industry and, and heavily. Yeah, I mean, it's just controlled by industry lobbyists. That's by design how it was set up. Industry was supposed to be looking after the orphans. So the decision on when an oil company is driven into bankruptcy is left to industry. Wow. Uh, the... I, I'm, there's a word I'm thinking of that starts with C. Uh, oh, hell, I'm going to say it. Corrupt. I mean, th this is what it's starting to look like. And I know there are legal definitions of corrupt. And Drew, you can, you can tell me that I'm wrong. This isn't corrupt. But by God, as an outsider and looking in, if I was an Albertan, I don't know what other conclusion I could come to. So save me from a, from a defamation suit here by telling me it's not corrupt. So I, I'm not a criminal lawyer and I have not looked up corruption, but I I much happier to stay in the zone of what I know, which is that this is this is really poor regulatory design. This is really not how you want things to be working, uh, because in the in the moment where uh, any individual in the system has to make a decision about what's going to happen next, you can see they're not given a great set of options. Uh, if the AER corrects the LLR estimates in 2019 they bankrupt like a third of industry all at once they're not going to do that but then they're not sure what to do if the owa pushes those small companies that have way too much liabilities compared to assets into bankruptcy those become orphans that might be the right answer though but it isn't for industry because then industry has to pay for the cleanup of those orphans uh Right. And of course, we've already determined that, you know, the AER is a captured regulator and far too close to the industry, protects the industry's interests over the public interest. So that ain't going to happen, essentially. And there's there's reasons that they prefer to keep the system going. And so they're looking for a way to very gently let the pressure out rather than having it pop all at once. And that, I think, is what they've been desperately looking for a way to do since 2019. Well, and here we are four years on and it only has gotten worse. So let's talk about recommendation five and six. And, you know, it, I, it's very easy for the auditor general, and it's his job, you know, to recommend that the AER determine how much security needs to be collected, when it will be collected, and how collection will be enforced. Quite another thing for the AER to design a system that does that because they've been looking to try to do that and failing for years now. Yeah, yeah. And they're, the system that exists now uh, is basically total discretion. When a company is transferring licenses to another company, someone in the AER is deciding whether it looks okay to them or not based on all of the information that they've gathered but the public doesn't get any insight into how those decisions are made. And one problem in the AG's report, the Auditor General's report, is that the AER has a poor track record of recording their explanations for why these decisions were made. So there were license transfers made in the past that seemed odd. Why was this approved? And the Auditor General says, well, the AER didn't record anything. I have no idea. Right. Uh, and it, so access to information, uh, the AER is, shall we say, an opaque organization. Well, here we can go beyond opaque. I could file freedom of information requests till I'm blue in the face. If no records exist, no records exist. Th those questions will never be answered. Great. So somebody sat at their desk, made a decision, and uh, there's no record of why they made that decision. And... <laughs> And that, that decision might have cost the Albertan taxpayer millions of dollars in the long run. Uh, you know, this this story just gets better and better, doesn't it? It's, and we're it all, just, 
Yeah, we're only on number. We're only on number. We've only dealt with the first issue that the A that the Auditor General uh, dealt with, and already, you know, it just feels like I'm drowning here. Okay, well, let's get on to number six: uh, processes to ensure oil and gas site closure, regulatory compliance, which means suspension, abandonment, remediation, and reclamation. So let's talk about suspension first. What is it? What are they? What is the What is the Auditor General talking about? When uh, an oil and gas well or facility is not in use, that's when it's it's being inactive, the company is supposed to turn it off properly. And turning it off properly doesn't mean just flicking the switch that turns the power on and off, but putting proper locks on it and putting like some kind of rubber stopper in the pipeline is my general understanding of how it works. There's a few different options for how they can block it up. This is supposed to be temporary. It's not permanently sealing the well, it's not abandonment, but it's enough to stop it from leaking while it's not in use. And in 2019, the AAR just pauses all enforcement. It just says, you know, we're gonna rethink how we require companies to do this and how important this is. So we're just not, we're just stopping until we figure out what we're doing. And they haven't resumed yet. Four years later, they haven't resumed. Well, isn't that convenient? It's, I mean, I'll read one line out of the report. We found AER had not evaluated the residual risk from this pause and did not have a timeline for restarting assurance activity. Okay. So if it doesn't have a timeline, I think the skeptic would be justified in saying that it probably ain't going to resume until pressure is put on it to either by the well, probably by the government, I guess. So to be the only agency capable of of putting applying that pressure. My goodness. Okay, so there's, that's sorry. There's one other I-Core connection here that after I-Core, is. industry is industry is frustrated because the AER's funding comes from industry, so that a lot of the the money that got misappropriated came from them, and so to to apologize, the AER cuts the AER's own budget and their own staff. So they have less staff than ever to enforce anything after they had done a bad job of regulating industry. Oh, okay. Hang on a second. I, th th we have to spend a little time on that. That we're both laughing here, folks, because this is just, it's, it's boarding on it's Kafka esque is what this is. Uh, so if I understand this correctly, uh, industry funds, the AER, uh, the AER, CEO, you know, is caught with his fingers in the cookie jar and the AER is embarrassed. So they say to the industry, well, in, in our penance is we're going to we're going to charge you less, cost you less, and we're going to cut all our staff and we'll just won't do a bunch of stuff that we're supposed to be doing in terms of regulating you. Merry Christmas. Well, I think what they said was we're going to cut our staff and we're going to cut our budget and we're going to work really efficiently to do everything that we're supposed to do. But that's a, a beautiful dream. And so what happens is this. Uh, stuff just doesn't get done. They don't have the staff. They don't have the budget. And they made the decision. Oh, uh, yes, of course. It's it's the old, you know, when I'm running things, it'll be so much more efficient. We'll cut all that waste. And there is no waste. And stuff just doesn't yep. get done. Okay. This, this is slightly outside of the Auditor General's report. But I, I, can, I have the staff numbers in front of me for 2018, 2019 to 2020. 2021, they, they went from 1193 to 893. So they cut 300 staff. Uh, they cut like- Wow, 25%. Yeah, like almost 25%. I don't know uh, if those numbers have gone up since, hopefully, but- Yeah, probably not. But look, I, I, but the, and the point of course is, is that their, their problems are multiplying. The issues with which they have to deal are multiplying at the very time they're cutting their staff by 25%. Yes. Oh, great. Sounds like a wonderful management strategy. Okay, let's talk about abandonment and decommissioning. What what the uh, AG have to say about this? So this is the permanent sealing of wells and uh, decontamination of the sites, reclaiming them so that they can be put back into use as farmland or whatever they were before they became an oil and gas site. And I think the most... Uh, stunning part here, if I can find it, is uh, that reclamation activity was really heavily focused on assets that never produced. 
Uh, 36% of well licenses abandoned by licensees and 74% of reclamation certified well sites had never been brought into production. So of the wells that received reclamation certificates, 74% of those never had hydrocarbons come out of them. Yeah, they I wanted to ask you about that. What is, uh, okay, so a dry well? Uh... It's got to be either dry wells or, or test wells, uh, things that were just checking where a reserve might be, or maybe something that hits water or can't be used for any reason. So um, essentially, these are the this is the low hanging fruit, the lowest cost wells to reclaim. Yes, and that that partially explains how the old liability estimate was so bad that they were estimating based on the re reclamation costs on this sample of wells, and three quarters of the wells really weren't oil and gas wells. Wow. Yeah. Well, here's another one. Um, inspections of inactive facilities are occurring, and I'm reading from the backgrounder here, with less than 3% of inactive facilities currently reclaimed. The number of inspections is considerable. What do we make of that? Uh, yes, so they're they're inspecting, yeah, less than 3% of inactive facilities <laughs> And reclaimed, and of those three percent, three quarters of them never produced oil or gas. Uh, Sorry, oh, three percent, only three percent, not thirty percent. Three percent of inactive facilities have currently been reclaimed. Ninety-seven percent of inactive facilities currently are not reclaimed. Is maybe I, the better I will way. To... Briefly, say it might be a little better than that because currently reclaimed means having a reclamation certificate, and after you deal with the. Uh, contamination on site, you do have to wait for things to revegetate. So there might be a, a good number of sites that are almost reclaimed, but waiting for grass and trees to grow back a little bit. Right. If if we were being generous, we might put that construction on it. Yeah. There's, there might be a couple more percent points on there. Okay. Uh, here's another one that really stood out for me. Uh, requirements exist for measuring fugitive greenhouse gas emissions from active wells. However, no similar requirements exist for inactive wells. And there are how many inactive wells? I've seen a, a whole a range of, of estimates, but what's your take on, on the number of inactive wells, Drew? Uh, number of inactive well licenses, 81,982. The AER does post that. Uh, so assuming that there's nothing... Actually, I guess some of those are, uh, might there might be a few more that are reclamation exempt that might be leaking, but I think that's a pretty good number. So methane emissions is has been, you know, I, I think governments are, are looking at that as the low-hanging fruit in the in emissions reductions from oil and gas. And here we have 81,000 wells, which is a significant percentage of all the wells that have ever been drilled in Alberta that are probably leaking methane and we haven't a clue how, how much of it. Yep. And we don't even, and we don't even know if those emissions numbers show up in official inventory numbers, if they're not measured. Well, if they're not measured, I would say there's no chance they do. They just, okay. And just we disappear. also know, we already know that Alberta uh, accounts for 38% of Canada's entire GHG emissions. The oil and gas sector in Canada accounts for 26% of national emissions. And here we have a bunch more emissions that are not being measured, that are outside of those numbers. So the numbers are likely higher. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Okay. And these are numbers, th these are emissions produced not in the course of any economic activity, but these are inactive sites. These, these are just an active problem. We are polluting, we, we are losing money and polluting with these sites. Goodness, so that just gets better and better, doesn't it? Okay, well, let's talk about reclamation. What did the AG have to say about that? Uh, I think I, I already had my my big point on the reclamation was that they have focused on sites that never produced oil and gas. I couldn't believe that because I had heard for years that industry was starting with the lowest hanging fruit. I thought that meant they were starting with the wells in the... Uh, southeastern corner of the province because those wells tend to be older but shallower they were shallower and easier to drill so they're easier to clean 
all right, this, no, this is, most of these weren't, never produced any oil and gas. That was a total shock to me. Now, the AG says here that the AER has increasingly automated its approval process for reclamation certificates. I don't know. How do you, if, if okay, so the oil and gas company is required to reclaim a site and the uh, and then it gets a reclamation certificate. One would think that an inspector would go out onto the site and check to make sure that the information that is being provided uh, to get that reclamation certificate is accurate. But it sounds like that's not the case. That is not the case. It is it is left to the third party, uh, the engineer, basically the environmental engineer or specialist to go out and say this was reclaimed properly and sign it and put the stamp on it and then send it to the AER. And apparently the automated system doesn't always properly check if that document is properly attached and sent to the AER. And uh, sometimes the AER's system for checking if a third party professional has previously sent in inaccurate statements doesn't work. So that someone who has, has previously said this site is reclaimed and then the AER will investigate and find out no, this was done wrong. This wasn't reclaimed right. That person is allowed by the automated sit automated system to continue to send in these reclamation certificate applications and get them automatically approved. No, I think it's important to note here that we're not accusing any, you know, third party contractors of of inappropriate behavior. Right. Well, I can't remember their name, but there was one person who was caught. There was one oh, okay. person for the AER absolutely has it on their website like this person cannot be signing these anymore okay got it uh and i suppose one could argue that where there's one there's more uh i guess what i'm i don't want to do is is tar the whole bunch the whole industry the consultants industry when we don't have any evidence but but this is a big flat red flashing sign that this needs to be investigated further to determine and because it, essentially it's at the it, it speaks to the integrity of the well reclamation program. Yes. Yeah. They, I mean, this, this relates to the AER understaffing itself because they wanted to automate it. They, they thought they could replace staff with a computer program and the computer program was not good enough, not nearly good enough to assess whether these things were properly done. Well, like here's a point that's made in the background here. Uh, AER audits reclamation post-certification. However, the process has been inconsistent and there is a 16% rate of noncompliance. So what did we just say? We, you know, the, the if there's one, there's more. Apparently there are because 16% of the applications are not in compliance. Yes. Uh, one other thing that I'd love to see, but is not in this report, and we'll see if we can get it, is how many of those 16% consisted of the uh, reclaimed sites that actually produced hydrocarbon. Because oh, if you start comparing those numbers, the number of sites that actually produced hydrocarbons and were properly reclaimed might go down even more. Okay, let's talk about remediation. So that's where you basically return the well site to its former state, and and so that the farmer can can you know go on and plant crops on it or whatever the case is. So the point that the AG makes here is the AER did not consistently re complete reviews of remedial action plan. Like, never mind that they went back and checked if the remediation was done correctly. That's not what this is saying. They didn't even check the plans. Yeah. There's, they, I think a big part of this actually is understaffing uh, in a pretty straightforward way. If you don't have the staff to fulfill your tasks, you don't have the staff to fulfill your tasks. So it's not that someone did something wrong. It's that there was jobs that just there was no one to do them. Yes, fair enough. And and we I think we've determined you've explained pretty clearly why that is. But look, you know, here, again, here are the recommendations for the AG. I won't read them out, but it's you know, there, there are recommendations here to correct the deficiencies that are noted in in this section of the report. But again, how do you correct deficiencies that you don't have the staff to put on to do the, the correction. I don't know. And you'll, I mean, you should talk to Mark Dorn about this because he was he was the guy who 
was saying, and I think not being listened to enough about how shoddy the system for approving reclamation certificates was, and that reclamation certificates that were being canceled by the regulator were not being entered into the system properly so that they would still show as being valid. Uh, so that he would sometimes have a letter apparently saying, this reclamation certificate has been canceled, but the official AER records would show for years this site was still reclaimed. Yeah, just for, for those uh, folks who aren't familiar with Mark, he's, the, uh, he's a member of the Polluter Pay Federation, and he's been involved in, in this kind of uh, criticism of the AER for, on behalf of landowners for years and years and years and intervened in, in various hearings and, and whatnot. He knows the, he knows the process from, at the ground level. Uh, very well and we have actually interviewed him um and one of the reasons just as an aside for listeners one of the reasons why energy media hasn't been on this uh story uh to the same extent now as in the past is you know because we've talked to mark dorn and reagan boychuk is a colleague of of marks and there have been other f folks who were involved in, in you know been criticizing the aer but as I've said, this is such a deep rabbit hole. And once you fall down the rabbit hole on this story, to report on it correctly, to do it, you know, to do the uh, to do a decent job and and to do it justice is a tremendous time commitment and resource commitment that a little, you know, media organization like Energy Media just doesn't have. And we're only doing it now because I think it's it's exploded to the point where it can't be ignored. And and so, hence why we've, I think this is now the 13th or 14th interview I've done in the past month, and no doubt there will be many more in coming months. It's such a huge issue. And remember, more context, listeners, oil and gas is by far the biggest export that Canada has. But between 100 billion and 120 billion per year, roughly double that of the uh, Ontario's automotive industry, which is is number two. So we're talking about Canada's biggest export sector here. And Alberta, you know, is the 800-pound gorilla in that sector. And this is this is the kind of uh, regulate, regulatory performance that that sector. So this is not some small thing. This is not just confined to Alberta. This has national implications. And we won't talk about it now because it would be in a just an aside. But you know the federal government has some role to play here as well. So I don't know. This has to be this has to be cleaned up. And so now I guess it is time that we have to do the reporting on it because it's just absolutely critical. Having said all of that, let's go on to number four: process processes to ensure timely closure closure of inactive sites. What did the AG AG mean by that? So this is one of the, the really long-term problems is that we didn't set timelines in Alberta for how long a site could be inactive before you had to clean it. So if you met the requirements of the LLR program, that was all you had to do since I think 2000 was when they ended their last requirement to have anything approaching a timeline for cleaning up an inactive site. So we're 23 years into this. Uh, just. 2022, the regulator brings in some requirement, the mandatory spend, which is a couple percents, I think 7% of the inactive liability as calculated under the LLR, which is the figure that is half what it should be. So about 3% of inactive liabilities now are supposed to be closed per year. Goodness. Well, look, and, and let's get back to what Premier Danielle Smith said about the R-Star program. She justified it by saying, well, many of these wells are, you know, they've been inactive for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, you know, there's no company left to take any responsibility, you know, none that has assets or, or of cash flow to do this. Somebody has to do it. Well, how did we get to the point where there are that many inactive wells, you know, that are that old? Well, it's because, you know, the regulator sort of regulatory coziness between the industry, the government, and and the regulator. And of course, the taxpayer is being asked to clean up the mess once yeah. again. So, so I will note for uh, the inactive wells, to count as inactive means they still have a company that's responsible for them. 
So you've got the inactive, then you've got the orphan that has no responsible company left for them. They fall to the Orphan Well Association, so they are indirectly the responsibility of the big oil companies that pay almost all of the Orphan Well Association levy, mostly CNRL, which CNRL, CNRL is very unhappy about now. And then you have the legacy assets, assets that were uh, not properly cleaned up or not cleaned up before laws were put in place for industry, obliging industry to do that. And industry's position and what the government and AER seem to have overwhelmingly tried to accept is that those aren't industry's problem at all anymore. Those are ones that have already slipped through the fingers and, and are going to end up somehow on the taxpayer. Uh, we'll see if that's exactly how it goes, but the report gets into the, the legacy sites as well. A question comes to mind based on the interview I did with Jonathan Matthews uh, last week about oil sands tailings ponds, where he was pointing out some chicanery that the AER does to, uh, it's an accounting issue, and they they do a little, and we'll go into more detail in another interview, listeners, so I do not want to bore you, but the point here is that tailings pond uh, volume is taken out of the inventory when it's really not, when it's still actually in physically in the inventory. So they make it appear a lot better than it actually is by basically fiddling with the numbers. And I, I can't help but think that if they would do that on the oil sand side of the industry, why wouldn't they do it on the, on the conventional side with wells? And, and so my question to you is, can we actually trust these numbers? Well, at this point, and the Auditor General has pointed this out before, there's two sets of books. There's the, the official LLR one, like the LLR says 30 billion in deemed liabilities or estimated liabilities under that program. And the internally calculated actual estimate is 60 billion. So for parts of the program, we're still using a lot, an estimate that we know has been wrong for five years. And so the AER has their like, they're deemed liabilities under the old calculation. And then they've got a new estimate produced under a different calculation, which still isn't public. We only know about it because the auditor general, that's twice as much. And right. I'd re they, they really need to just reconcile those, get rid of the number that they know is wrong, only use the number that they're calculating properly and, and make public what it is. Like you were saying how, what a strange area this is. And for the years I've been working in it, it, it requires a lot of freedom of information requests. It requires digging through their deep, like the deep regulatory documents to try to sort out exactly what's going on. I would love if this stuff would become public and normal. I'd like to just be able to get this all from the regulators report and analyze it like a regular lawyer does. I'm, I'm a little sick of feeling like I'm searching for a spy i don't want to do that anymore. so please well, look, i, I, I mean get rid of the one book just give me the one set of numbers okay so the, you know your your analogy here is a, a two sets two sets of books which you know like businesses cro crooked businesses keep two sets of books and you go to jail for keeping two sets of books there, right? there's a reason they have two sets of books i understand how it happened it was that problem in 2019 where they had to use the llr they couldn't adjust the numbers without causing some huge financial crash but they 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 need to fix it they need to get rid of the inaccurate set of numbers you, you can't have that thing in use anymore the, you know a lot of times when i get into conversations uh, about this we, we're doing interviews with various folks, some of them I've mentioned uh, during this interview, there's a, a sense of, you know, we need to clean this up. We need to make it better. The industry needs to, you know, the AER needs to do this and the industry needs to do that. And what we don't talk about is calling people on the carpet and having consequences for this kind of negligence you know, I suggested maybe it was corruption and maybe not, but whatever, you know, but this is terrible. And at what point, I, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist here. I'm not supposed to get upset about this, but on behalf of the people of Alberta, may we be outraged for just a little bit that this kind of, you know, behavior is going on and it's not enough to stop it and reform it. 
some people's fingers need to be wrapped. Is that not well, fair to say? That's, well, one of the issues is that Ellis was gone after i So that a lot of this happened on the watch of a team that is already gone. Uh, so you have to you have to try to carefully sort out how much can you put on the shoulders of the current leadership of the AER, and you shouldn't blame the people, you know, the people filing particular documents at the AER. Most of them were probably doing nothing wrong at all and doing their best under the conditions given to them. Uh, so, I don't know. Finding an individual who's responsible for any of this at this point is going to be pretty tough. This is This is really big and long term. And I want to make a point here that the not all of this happened under conservative governments. There was the progressive conservatives who were in power for 44 years up until 2015. So some of this, a lot of this took, you know, place on their watch. But then Rachel Notley and the NDP were government from 2015 to 2019. And I, I don't think that there was a concerted effort to clean up the AER. In fact, the Ellis i business took place while the NDP was government. And it is true. I think I don't think it is overstating the case that, you know, the UCP and particularly under Premier Danielle Smith has been absolutely in the pocket of the of the industry. There's, you know, I mean, my goodness, she was a lobbyist for the industry before she became premier. And she's behaved like a lobbyist ever since she's been premier since last August. So this is not just a political problem. It's not depending on who is in government. This is a much bigger issue than that. Would you agree? Uh, I'll add a couple details that when the NDP comes in, uh, they were looking to change things at the AER. They were looking to partially restructure the mandate of the AER and the the journalism on it is pretty clear that it's industry who says, please don't. Like, we really, really like the structure of the AER. This is working for us. <laughs> and then oh, yeah, of course. it doesn't get changed. Um, I, I can't explain any of that. That's that's outside of my purview. So I don't I don't understand how some of this stuff happens. Okay. So, well, we're both we're both a little flummoxed here, as you as listeners have probably gathered. Um, so let's go on to recommendation. Sorry, the the issue of risk man management and the new liability management framework. Tell us about that. Uh, so, the I think we've actually covered most of this already. I've talked about the unfunded legacy. Uh, the replacement for the LLR is the. The LCA, which is just total discretion, um, apparently exercised in secret. That's that's worrying. I hope they're starting to document some of their decisions. Sorry, the LCA. Keep in mind that not not all of the listeners will be, you know, immersed. The, the, the in... licensee capability assessment. So that instead of using this ratio of assets and liabilities that was not accurate, uh, they're going to be considering a broader set of information from industry. And the, the big change that hope, the big change that may or may not end up being useful is that they're going to try to keep track of how much reserves companies have left. And that gives them the ability to, if they want to, obtain security from companies as the wells start to run dry. It doesn't fix the situation for those companies that are already in deep financial distress. Uh, because I, I, I don't know what they're going to do about that. And apparently neither did they. <laughs> well, isn't that reassuring? I'm sorry. You know, I have to apologize. There are probably some Alberta landowners who are, you know, people like Mark Dorn uh, who are just fed up with this. And and I, I've been chuckling a little bit in the courses because I don't know what else to do. You know, if it's, if it's 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 I I would think that people who are affected by this I must be on the verge of despair, because this leads to hardship out in rural communities uh, for farmers who aren't getting paid, uh, farmers whose land has been taken out of out of you know out of production because of, there's a, a well site or more one or more well sites on their property. I mean, this is a serious issue, but it's also it's almost darkly comic. 
because of it's, the fumbling and the and the ineptitude and the incompetence and the the regulatory capture, it's darkly comic. It's it's such a weird issue to understand some of the details that it does not. It feels like you must have misunderstood, and I get that feeling a lot that I must be misunderstanding something here. Uh, one other point I did want to make is on the Orphan Well Association, the levy calculation. The Orphan Well Association was providing annual reports and letters saying what levy they were planning to charge their members to the AER. And the Auditor General summary is the AER didn't do anything with them. They had no process to review or assess whether the levy was appropriate or whether it was enough. They didn't have any long-term plan for when the orphan backlog will be cleared and apparently still don't. And only in 2022, well, the Auditor General was doing the report, did the AER start looking at the numbers proposed by the Orphan Well Association and saying, maybe the levy needs to be higher here. So the upcoming levy is now, I think, 135 million. And yeah, jump from 72 was the plan to 135, 2022. Yeah, and let's point out that the the NDP lent the Orphan Well Association two hundred thirty five million dollars. I think the Stelmac government, or, or before that, the PC government might have lent them one hundred thirty five million, if memory serves. And then the federal government uh, during COVID kicked in a billion dollars to Alberta to clean up wells. So you know that that's important context in in terms of what we're talking about. Well, let's let's talk uh, about sorry, sorry. For the, the billion dollars did not go to the Orphan Well Association. The billion yes, dollars that's, went, to, right. went to the inactive sites. There was also a federal loan to the OWA, but I can't remember offhand how big it is. Well, I think we can say that there's been a hell of a lot of public money that has gone to cleaning up uh, obligation oil and gas industry obligations. Well, let's talk about the uh, second. Uh, uh, issue that the uh, Auditor General reported on, which is goals, performance measurement, and public accountability. And I think we pretty much determined there is almost zero public accountability. It's pretty low. It's been a troubled area, that's for sure. And what, they don't set goals, and then they don't measure the performance for the the uh, industry when they're, you know, cleaning up wells and reclaiming wells and None of that happens? Is that what the AG is saying here? Well, I think they're talking about trying to have a plan for the number of inactive sites or the number of orphan sites, because there's a graph in the, the report that shows the number of inactive sites creeping up from 2000 to 2020, and then only taking a slight cut because of the billion dollars from the federal government. And it doesn't matter what the oil price is. And the there was no internal AER document, apparently, that said, by this year, we want to cut the or uh, the inactive liability in half, or we want to taper it off over so many years. They just collected the information and then just looked at it. Well, look, uh, there is a recommendation here, and I have to think that the Auditor General, this this is, I think this is accountant humor, right? So, so let me read it to you. We recommend that the AER improve its accountability processes. Like, no kidding. You know, I mean, uh, we've been talking for an hour now and there is no accountability anywhere. So, okay, let's recommend that the AER improve that. Good luck. There's there's a, a serious need for long-term plans to be made, uh, for those plans to be made public, and then for the public to be able to assess whether the AER is meeting its plans, because that just hasn't happened. Right. I mean, you know, the Outer General says that the AER doesn't communicate with Albertans, doesn't communicate any of this information to Albertans. I mean, you're you're somebody who's deep into it, and you can't get information. Yeah. It. I mean, it. It's. It's very very tough to get records from them on any of these issues and the freedom of information act is pretty weak so it's both weak and very slow there were people who were trying to get information on the situation in 2018 who are getting those records now wow five years later well look the the last issue here concerns the orphan well association we, i think we've pretty much talked that one through 
So we can wrap up our conversation and give, I have one question for you. So the Auditor General has re revealed deep, deep, deep deficiencies in the way the AER is structured, the way it operates, its relationship to industry. I mean, on and on and on. I mean, this is a, you almost want to blow it up and, and start from scratch. Um, but really, unless the government decides, I, I suppose the AER management could say, oh my goodness, you know what? The, the Auditor General really did a good job here and, and, and pointed out some of our deficiencies and we're going to fix that. Based on its history, I'd be very skeptical. I don't think that's going to happen except for, you know, maybe some minor cosmetic changes. So really the government has to step in here and, and, and demand that the AER be reformed and, and however the, whatever the process is. But what if it doesn't? It'll just keep going. We'll do this interview again in uh, five years. Okay. So if the government doesn't act, nothing changes. Yeah. It'll just keep going. Wow. So is there a possibility? What, or maybe what's the likelihood? I think there is a, a big possibility. But what is the likelihood that at some future date, because we know you know, the, the Inter International Energy Agency and many other forecasting agencies like BP and so on say peak oil is going to have peak oil demand is going to occur in 2030. And then we'll probably have a little bumpy plateau. And then sometime in the 2030s, demand is going to start to decline. Well, when de demand declines and supply keeps chasing that demand, prices fall. We saw that in 2015, 2016, 2017. So there is a very limited time the window to fix this problem is maybe 10 years i don't know make no, you don't know right where oh, things oh, go oh. on climate change really tough um but uh, if if the problem isn't solved when that moment comes this problem becomes albertans problem just completely the taxpayers problem and that's where i was going with this yeah. That they, they that there we now can look into the future, and we can. This is not a something that you know can go on infinitely, uh, and there's never going to be you know nobody's going to ask the government to write a check because you know there will always be demand for oil or always be demand for gas. No, now we can see the end of the industry in its current form, and and this government or sorry. The in uh, the taxpayer could potentially, as I understand it, be on the hook for literally tens and maybe hundreds of billions of dollars of environmental liabilities. Well, am I in the ballpark? Uh, the official estimate is sixty billion on the uh, conventional oil field. The official estimate is still thirty billion on the mine financial security program. Uh, but that's that thirty billion is not going to be reliable either. Right. And it was three or four years ago when the National Observer broke a story. They found a PowerPoint from a from an a, the AER that said that at that time, the liabilities were estimated at $262 billion. And I remember at the time, I'll be frank with you, I, I scoffed at that idea because it basically was based on the idea that uh, the, the entire industry would be vaporized overnight and then the industry, you know, the government would have to step in. Uh, so even if, you know, I've since revised my opinion, shall we say, uh, based on the current uh, information at hand. But I, I think it's pretty clear that Alberta would be bankrupted by this. And you know what? I, I remember I remember a time uh, back in the 90s, the early 90s, when the Grant Divine government in Saskatchewan had brought the Saskatchewan government to the brink of of uh, bankruptcy, insolvency. And I contacted, as I was doing a story and I contacted a government of Canada official. And I said, what if, what, if a, uh, what if a provincial government went bankrupt? You know, what would the federal government do? And they said, well, we would step in because we can't, we can't, uh, I mean, you just, you'd ruin the, the, uh, the credit of every other province and the federal government if one province went bankrupt. So, this is probably the worst case scenario, and we never, you know, usually don't see worst case scenarios, but I think it underscores the seriousness of this problem. And this is not something to be 
you know, just shrug your shoulders and move on to the next story the way it has been in Alberta for so many years. Yeah, I've I've got another call, unfortunately, set for now. So I got to run in one second, but I I have no idea what that situation would look like. Uh, it would not be good. Um, and other than that, I, I don't think I can correct or change much of what you said. I, I think that 260 billion estimate included some numbers that could have been calculated better. So I, I don't think it's that bad. Right, but I'm sure it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't take two hundred and sixty two billion dollars of environmental liabilities to bankrupt uh, the the Alberta government. We know that. Well, look, Drew. Thank yeah. you very much for this. Um, this is such a big problem, and we're going to be talking about it again in the future. Uh, but thank you for today. You're very welcome. Take it easy.